Stanley Carlson Teese is working on a tough missive. How do we honor the civil rights of LGBTQ Americans while simultaneously honoring the religious freedom of all Americans? In the current confrontation between those with traditional religious views on the one hand and the gay rights lobby on the other, is it zero sum or is there some middle ground, some third way that could allow for equitable public pluralism to actually shine amidst our sharply divided times? That's the fundamental question animating today's conversation, and it's a fascinating one. Last Friday, the Equality Act, linked in the show notes, passed in the House, though the Republican Senate majority looks unlikely to take it up. Nonetheless, the Equality Act had an astonishing 240 co-sponsors. So as Stanley and Kelsey say, in all likelihood, it's just a matter of time before federal legislation of some kind governs the way gay Americans and religious communities are legally permitted to hire, fire, and participate in a wide array of public activities, from social services and healthcare to education and security. Kelsey Dallas is the national religion reporter for the Deseret News. And as a journalist, she's a rising star who's taken part in two Faith Angle events this past year. Stanley Carlson Teese is the founder and senior director of the Institutional Religious Freedom Alliance, a division of the Center for Public Justice. His University of Toronto doctoral dissertation focused on Dutch politics and on the specific public engagement and wide-ranging contributions of its Protestant and Catholic communities during the 19th and 20th centuries. As you'll hear, Stanley brings a balanced, measured voice that's working alongside other faith leaders and representatives of the LGBTQ community to try to take seriously both sides of the coin in a larger debate that should be aimed at balancing public legal rights of gay Americans and robust religious freedom. Let's get started. Well, today we're very pleased to be joined by Kelsey Dallas, the national religion reporter at the Deseret News, and by Stanley Carlson Teese, the founder and senior director of the Institutional Religious Freedom Alliance. Kelsey, you just had a piece. Can you kick us off? Yes. So I've been checking the Equality Act, this effort to add sexual orientation and gender identity non-discrimination protections to existing federal non-discrimination law. I've been following that for about two months, and it just broke on Monday that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints was coming out against the Equality Act, at least as it exists today, and saying we need a better approach and um, that's called Fairness for All, that sort of looks more balanced at how to expand LGBTQ rights while also protecting religious freedom. And you cite Stanley at length in your most recent piece. Stanley, what can you tell us about that piece of legislation and the larger circumstances surrounding it? Although the story kind of has been, I would say, quietly breaking. Is that right, Kelsey? So there's not been nearly as much news as one would think about such an important piece of legislation. But it comes on the background of a number of years of advancing legislation at the state and municipal level to better protect the rights of uh, LGBTQ people. Bills, laws that always have some kind of religious accommodation in them. At the federal level, there's been very little legislation of that sort, although there have been attempts over the years. So now there's a very serious effort. You know, the Equality Act itself, it's in the House. It's called H.R. 5, with that really low number to say the Democrats 
in the House think it's really important and wanted to showcase it and probably will be up for a vote on Friday, this Friday, and most likely will pass the House because it has more co-sponsors than it needs votes to pass. But then it seems very unlikely that the Senate, which is in Republican hands, will even take it up, much less deal with it and vote on it at the moment. But, you know, when the Senate changes hands, then it'll probably be something different. So there's been an effort across the nation through state and local legislation and through court cases to better secure rights against discrimination in a lot of different fields for gay people, to use that shorthand. Typically, like I said, those have had religious exemptions, but there have been a lot of controversies that have popped up, whether it's cake bakers and other wedding services vendors or somebody in a funeral parlor who changed their gender and then was fired. Other cases, some of which are now at the U.S. Supreme Court. And so I think for many people, believe it's time for the federal government to step in and say, well, how are we going to deal with this when there's such a patchwork across the United States and it's moving through the courts? And there are some federal agencies also that have been taking some action on their own to try to better protect people from discrimination based on sexual orientation, gender identity. So this is going to be a huge change if it passed because of sort of different expectations around public spaces and then also organizations that were already covered by non-discrimination laws. But what Stanley alluded to is definitely correct, which is people aren't really talking about it. It's not getting written about as much as you might assume, knowing what a huge sort of change to our federal laws this would be. And that's probably because it's like well accepted that the Senate probably won't pick this up for a vote. And so it's, is this just a bunch of posturing on the part of certain Democratic leaders? But it's unfortunate because there's really interesting discussions to be had about the Equality Act, how it wants to handle religious freedom, and how this particular bill encapsulates entire nationwide difficult relationship with religious exemptions these days. Yeah. And I'd add to that, So whether this is called a kind of messaging build at the House level or not, once it's passed, it's going to be in action in a way it hasn't been before this. And although this Senate seems unlikely to take it up, it'll have been given a dry run out into public and people will have looked at it and it'll help to frame the next stage, you know, when something comes up next. It is really significant in many ways. One way to think about it is creating a national uniformity of protections against sexual orientation, gender identity discrimination. So about 20, 21, 22 states have laws like that. A lot of big cities have laws like that. But that means a large part of the country doesn't, large in geography, but maybe 40% of the population. That's pretty significant to have something new. But also if it's federal law, of course, there's a lot more enforcement strength behind it. And so that's one thing that concerns some people. If we don't get this right, it's not just kind of uniformly what Utah has or some other place, but actually something really strong. And alluding to Utah, Utah did this with putting in very strong religious protections in the areas of law they changed. And this bill says, well, there are already exemptions in the civil rights law. We don't have to do anything new. I think that's kind of questionable. But so to not just make a uniformity across the U.S., but to have it be federal, I think it's pretty significant. And then two other parts of it, which come out in Kelsey's story on this very well. One of them is to dramatically expand what in federal law is considered a place of public accommodation. And that's very significant to go from basically 
for the federal government to regulate things like places of amusement and gas stations and motels and restaurants, classical public accommodations going back to civil rights era when African-Americans in some states couldn't get served when they traveled and so on, to go beyond that to say basically any service even delivered by one person and not even having a kind of fixed location that that could be a public accommodation because you're dealing with the public in some way. That's pretty dramatic expansion of that definition. So I think there's a lot going on here. Oh, and the other piece, of course, is that this Equality Act would say that the Religious Freedom Restoration Act doesn't apply to questions of discrimination as under these civil rights laws as they're being amended. So that's pretty significant. That'd be the first time anything has been done to narrow or change the scope of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. And remind us, that's the 1993 piece of legislation that went through Congress, now Law of the Land, that makes clear that there should not be a substantial burden put upon religious organizations that are participating in public life in some way. Religious organizations and people, unless the government has a compelling interest and the only way it can accomplish that compelling interest is by putting this burden, that came out of a Supreme Court case that changed the standards for how to evaluate religious exercise. And Congress responded to that and said, well, you know, what the court has said, that's going too far to limit religious exercise rights, so we're going to pass this. It passed the House and Senate almost unanimously, and President Clinton had a big ceremony saying, this is a wonderful thing, we have to pass it. And, you know, it's become controversial since then, as LGBTQ rights, uh, reproductive rights have advanced, and then some people and organizations have used RIFRA or, or appealed to RIFRA to say, But this law, this change, this decision of the government, this practice is entrenching on our religious exercise rights, and it's not something government has to do. Occasionally, they have won, like the Hobby Lobby case was a RIFRA case. Often they lose, and it is exactly that kind of balance and how serious is the government's interest is there really no other way to accomplish this. To my mind, to just say, we're going to define that already and just say those kinds of cases uh, a religious person or organization can't even appeal to Religious Freedom Restoration Act or RIFRA, that seems to me goes too far. As I was writing my story on these religious freedom ramifications of the Equality Act, I made this joke on Twitter that I was playing a little game with myself to see how far I could get in the story without spelling out the Religious Freedom Restoration Act and exactly what it meant. And I was being serious that it was this effort to try to help people understand what I meant by religious freedom protections without sort of confusing them with this detail and then having to do all the work of catching people up on this really rich and interesting history. So Stanley's already been walking through that, why this RIFRA law was passed, what that meant about the First Amendment's religious freedom protections, and maybe how they're not as strong as you might think in a courtroom. It's so difficult, both for a reporter who has to talk about it, but just in public conversation conversations about RIFRA and other religious freedom protections because people might call to mind something like a cake baker who won't serve a gay couple and not understand what laws that case was argued with, what happens in typical religious freedom lawsuits. So there's just all this very intense background that is missing from public dialogue around the Equality Act and around religious freedom in general. And that's A great uh, note to kind of think about this fact that surveys show, and I don't remember the exact numbers, that a lot of people think there already are 
federal laws, you know, national laws that protect LGBTQ people against discrimination. So they're kind of surprised to discover that's not the case. That's kind of on the one side. On the other side, I think just a lot of people are not really aware of how extensive accommodations are in our society for religious exercise. So in other words, there are a lot of things going on that people have figured out ways to live together, to accommodate. It's a organization that people go to voluntarily, so nobody else really bothers about them, to you say, hey, they've got a different practice, and all of a sudden that bothers people, and so on and so on. So a law like this and this controversy and then bringing up RIFRA and so on, it raises to the surface a lot of things that are actually happening around us that we're not kind of aware of or thinking about. And then it forces us to think, you know, what's right and what might be wrong about this. Mm -hmm. But then there ought to be a discussion about it and not just to have Congress kind of silently do something and people not raise questions if they have questions because, hey, it's not going to pass anyway. I think that's the reason actually for the May seventh law that was sent to the uh, House of Representatives. The letter, letter. Yeah, the the letter Mm -hmm. by a number of religious organizations. I was one of the signatories. We didn't try to gather thousands of signatures. We just said a number of organizations that have been thinking about this ought to just say, you know, say publicly, say to the whole House of Representatives, there are serious religious freedom things. And we want to call that out, even if not that many people are paying attention to the Equality Act because that's an important part of the whole debate. And some note was taken of the religious freedom aspect of all this in the House committee work, and it's in the House committee report, Judiciary Committee. But to our minds, it didn't go nearly deep enough. Mm-hmm. And I think it's worth maybe noting the opening line or two of that letter, which names that the group of signatories represents religious denominations, schools, and charities that comprise over 100 million Americans and serve many millions more. I mean, it's an interesting sort of opener reminding members of Congress that the religious community in the United States is a very large community indeed. And Kelsey, your piece cites Jonathan Rauch, who's been a part of faith angle gatherings in the past, you know, sort of suggesting that a lot of these debates are sort of guided now by an all or nothing mindset, his piece in National Affairs a debate which a few years ago, there seemed to be very fairly good prospects for reasonable accommodations has hardened into legal and political trench warfare. And I wonder if you might each comment on that. Stanley in particular will link to your long form article from late April about not just the Equality Act, but also fairness for all and this alternative effort that you and some others have been working on together. But, but what about the larger mood Yeah, I want to thank Stanley for pointing me actually to that Jonathan Rausch piece in the National Review. It was from 2017 when the Equality Act was also before Congress and really was sort of dead on arrival. So it was just sort of a reflection on what it meant and why it had this type of guidance about religious freedom. But I think Jonathan and others have tried to point out that we have always tried in America to approach even non-discrimination protections with the idea that we need to be aware of context and we need to say what is fair to ask of everyone. And that can be very difficult 
at any point because with discrimination, we don't welcome it in our society. But what do you do when it happens and one party doesn't want to be attacking the other? It's just that they don't want to violate their sincerely held religious beliefs. And so it's been hard in my interviews and in my writing to both talk about these efforts to encourage compromise and to look for a more balanced path where religious freedom and LGBTQ rights advocates can be excited about the outcome when certain people involved in the debate think compromise is exactly the wrong direction to go. The minute some new religious exemption is proposed to just walk away from the compromising table, it's a very complicated, bigger question about what we do about discrimination and is discrimination always meant as an attack? Yeah, that's uh, all a great point. So I'm not myself sure that a good, and I don't even like the word compromise, but a good fitting together of different interests, modus vivendi, maybe there's another word. If we come to that, that people will be excited about that. I think that was a phrase you used. It would be easier for everybody that has a distinctive point of view or distinctive set of interests to be the only ones in the country making the laws and just let everybody else live by your laws. That would be exciting. But you know, we live in a very diverse country where there are quite different points of view. And certainly now on the question of LGBTQ rights and where are they appropriately exercised in what way and where can religious dissenters dissent without getting in trouble with the law. That's just a hard thing, which there are obviously different points of view. So I think what people have to do is not so much say what would be the wonderful law that we might pass, but is what would be a law that we can live with that protects our important interests and our identities and convictions and so on, and something that you could accept also as doing that for you. And that's not going to be anybody's first choice, most likely, but it may be something that actually is fair for people. The Equality Act and its sponsors do pay some attention to these things. I want to acknowledge that. So we can say, you know, RIFRA's put off limits. That'd be the first time, although Congress has uh, ever so often said they want to try that. And I've been part of coalitions on Capitol Hill that have gone to both Republicans and Democrats and say, hey, don't mess with RIFA just because you think it would be easier for whatever your interest is to get its way, because there is a balancing test right in there. And if your way, the Pentagon, border security, whatever it is, if your way actually is a compelling interest that ought to be vindicated against every other claim, then you're going to win. So there's already a balance in there. So don't try to prejudge that. And so six or seven efforts have been beaten back. So that's the bad part of the Equality Act. There is an effort to protect religion to some extent. And as the backers of the Equality Act say, the civil rights laws already have a number of religious exemptions built into them, and none of those are taken out. So just some new protections are put in for LGBTQ people. But to my mind, that's not really quite adequate. You know, the religious exemptions that are in different parts of the law are all tailored very carefully to the part of the law they're in and to the protected class that's involved. And that's Jonathan Rausch's article. That's what he points out, that if the protected class is race or national origin, ethnicity, there's almost no freedom that anybody has to say, I've got a good reason to exercise, you know, a race differentiation here. That's just almost not allowed, although it's not totally banned because, for example, in employment, federal law doesn't even reach very small employers. But when it comes to other 
protected classes, whether it's uh, disability or age or sex or religion, religion really important to me and religion important in this context. There actually are a lot of restrictions as well as protections that are in there. And so those are all keyed on the different areas. This is a narrow view of public accommodation. This is about education. This is about federal funding. This is about something else. And what is a protected class? And so into that carefully balanced mix to throw some expansions like expanding uh, public accommodation way, way, way beyond whatever it has been. And to add some new protected classes because sexual orientation, gender identity, you know, they're in, certainly in some ways different than sex or religion or something else and say, but we've taken care of the religious problem because we haven't disturbed the existing religious exemptions. I think that's not really quite fair. Just to take an example, advocates say, well, so one thing that we will do here by expanding the public accommodation law and then adding sexual orientation, gender identity, non-discrimination is to make sure that a gay person is not kept out of a funeral parlor when they go to get funeral services. And, you know, it's kind of like, why would there be any religious problem with that? Well, the May 7th letter, in which a number of different religious organizations, including some who didn't actually sign it for various reasons, points out that there are Jewish funeral parlors that only provide funeral services to members of the Jewish faith. Well, I think they would want to say, that's really important to us. Why can't we serve the Jewish community and not just everybody because you want to pass this other law. So in other words, it's not fair to just say we didn't change any of the existing exemptions, but we're changing a lot of other things, and we still can say it's the same set of protections. Mm -hmm. You know, Stanley, can I push back on that just a little bit? You say at one point, you know, we might all like to be in the same kind of community where we're raised with reinforcing norms and we have sort of the same vision of the good, the true, and the beautiful. On the one hand, there'd be value in that. On the other hand, sometimes that's a little boring, isn't it? Yeah. You know, so so what I want to say is like some of our religious traditions will teach that the wheat and the tares grow up together. You know, you go downtown Washington, D.C., you've got food from all over the world, uh, ethnicities. And it, it's incredible, you know. Isn't there something about what you describe of your both-and solution yeah. and the fairness for all that is, that is actually attractive, in fact, about pluralism? Yeah. So I'm a, in favor of pluralism and diversity, particular diversity that extends beyond looks and customs and so on to religiously-based views and practices and all that. I didn't mean to deny that, but I think it's the case that— they're not only communities with certain standards, this is the way we think things ought to be or whatever, but those communities also have a view of how best to accommodate everybody else and their diversity, right? And so there are religious communities that would say, in this case, that they don't think they're being against LGBTQ people, but the way they would like to accommodate their legitimate interests is a different way than a lot of those LGBTQ people would say, and vice versa. You know, people that back the Equality Act, they would say, hey, we're trying to take your religious freedom into account. So we're not just creating a world just for us, but we want to create the world for everyone, but we'll define how you all fit into our world. You mm -hmm. know, so I think this is a kind of question of what is a fair kind of diversity for everybody. So protecting the specific ways different communities think about things, but then also as they think about how do we interact, how do we come up with something that's fair? In terms of the public legal yeah. framework, you know, I remember Stephen Montma, our late friend, yeah. uh, had Positive Neutrality was the title of one of his right. books. You know, what's that dynamic look like for 
a larger people group. And you talk about yeah. adoption in your long form yeah. letter. Can you maybe explain what this concept of fairness for all or positive neutrality might mean for something like the public legal framework for adoption? Yeah. So these things are all very difficult and complicated. And Kelsey knows that she's interviewed a lot of people and thought about this a lot. And, and maybe people in the audience have as well. Non-discrimination laws are there to protect people against being treated wrongly in what they do. And one model of that is just to say, well, here you are, you have a certain characteristic. Uh, you should then be able to get services or walk into an institution and nobody's going to say to you, this isn't quite your place. That's one way of thinking about discrimination. I think we're actually not very consistent about that because it's perfectly allowable and specifically protected in federal civil rights law and state laws and municipal laws too, that religious employers can only hire religious people. So, you know, somebody who's not of that faith or a secular person walks into those religious entities, they could be turned away and the law doesn't say that's discrimination. By the way, if you apply for a job as a publicist, a fundraiser, something like that for people for the ethical treatment of animals, PETA, you'll be turned away if you're not 24-7 vegan, so I wouldn't fit there. Well, that's the only way to have diverse organizations. So the law accommodates a lot of that kind of diversity. So what might that mean in the case of adoption foster care services? And one way to think about it is these are private entities that ought to just serve anybody who wants to be served by them. But one consequence of that is that I think some of these entities would become less uh, trusted by, less appealing to people who have particular religious standards. Just like if a religious college was required to become secular, it would become less appealing to people of a deep religious faith. And so in the fairness for all model of thinking about adoption foster care, the idea is to start very strongly with the actual right under the law for LGBTQ people to be foster parents and adoptive parents, and that has to be secured, but then allow different private organizations to specialize in the way they actually specialize at the moment. And states are the ones who administer all this to make sure that people have access to an agency that will actually serve them. And so that's would be using the kind of the model of religious education, religious daycare. That's actually the way we do daycare and federally funded services in which there's a great variety of daycare centers so that parents who want and trust one kind of daycare can find it. And if they trust and want a different kind of daycare, they can find that. But everybody can find federally supported daycare. So this is an effort to say sometimes the strict discrimination model, it doesn't fit every category very well. It certainly doesn't fit religion very well. Deseret News has been doing quite a bit of reporting about faith-based foster care and adoption agencies because of ongoing lawsuits and state-level legislation battles across the country. And something that comes up is just the pain that can be felt on both sides in these debates. Because I think many of us are upset to hear that an LGBTQ couple is turned away and then perhaps loses that interest or is too nervous to go to another agency because we need more foster and adoptive parents in the system. But the same type of pain can be felt on the religious freedom side when a mother who is hoping to put her child up for adoption or a couple who wants to adopt kids of special needs or just kids in general wants to work with an agency that shares their religious outlook on the world and wouldn't feel comfortable in the same way with just a state agency that is going to handle it in a totally secular manner. So it's, it's sort of like how 
do we preserve a world where everyone can still access what works for them? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's really important, I think. That kind of discouragement or even harm that comes from being turned away from someplace, that's just not right. One way of thinking about this maybe with adoption foster care would be would be like the federally supported daycare, where essentially parents who have the income level that they can get federally supported daycare, they go through a process that certifies that they are eligible, and then they are shown a list of all the providers, and then they pick one that works for them. So it's like the first place you go to qualifies you. And then the first actual agency that you go to is one that you know in advance is compatible with you. And that's why you picked it. And so maybe with federally funded foster care adoption services, the first stop could be with a state agency that pre-qualifies a person or couple saying, yes, we know you have a stable life. You have the kinds of qualities that we think would qualify you to be a good foster adoptive parent. We're not going to do a whole home study, but we'll pre-qualify you. And then look at this list of all the different kinds of agencies we have and find one that really appeals to you that is working with the kinds of kids that you feel competent in taking. Some people, they are up for the challenge. Just imagine this of, you know, siblings who are teenagers, but there are a lot of families who say that's kind of beyond our capacity. Uh, so to kind of upfront, see what the match can be to prevent people from walking in the door and then somebody saying, sorry, we just aren't equipped to handle your particular needs. As Stanley alluded to, this can be sort of complicated to walk through and understand the different systems that need to be in place to make sure everyone feels taken care of and, and can sort of access the service they desire. But I think the concern felt by a lot of folks these days is that we're just not even trying to have these conversations, that the members of Congress are not even entertaining a discussion of what that type of legislation could look like. It's just, let's all shout out each other until someone has enough votes to sort of unilaterally decide what happens. That's kind of like Congress at large. But I will say, I went to a conversation in a Senate office along with a very well-respected lawyer, uh, Robin Fretwell Wilson, who's worked at the state level and also at the federal level on some of these fairness for all kinds of concepts. And we walked into a, a Senate office and said, hey, we have an idea on adoption and foster care that maybe would possibly appeal to you know both sides. And they almost ran to the door and grabbed us and said, if you do, we are all ears. There were both Republican and Democratic staffers in there. They said, we think there are some improvements that need to be made in our child welfare laws, but we can't really pass anything because as soon as we try to deal with this area, then one side or the other side says, no, you got to do it my way or you got to do it my way. And there's enough of a balance in Congress to say then nothing goes anywhere. And that's stopping the actual reauthorization of various bills and the creation of you know new legislation that people think is needed. So we had a long discussion with them and they said, well, it's worth thinking about. So at the staff level, there was more interest than sometimes you would guess from the kind of macro, I represent this point of view, you represent that, and uh, never the twain shall meet. Mm -hmm. It's interesting how many times on this podcast, the theme of fracture and deep partisanship and deep divide has come up. And, you know, one way to learn about the Harris case that's going before the Supreme Court is a letter from somebody urgently motivating you to send money, send money and help us get the word out, you know, and it's, it's as opposed to hearing some of the deeper needs on both sides of the larger issue at hand. So I understand this work you've been doing 
is in large part rooted in this 2015 Utah compromise. The idea, help us understand, is to basically, you know, hold up these two large principles, put some into law, but then say, let the courts work it out if there are particular places where the law doesn't directly cover. What's the fairness for all really look like? So, and I think that you was directed at me, uh, but of course, Kelsey can say a lot because she works in Utah where this happened. So Utah basically had no civil rights protections statewide for LGBTQ people. But as life has gone on with the first national same-sex marriage decision, with the Windsor decision, and so on, I think a lot of people in Utah, including the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, said, we see that opinions changing, viewpoints are changing, and so on. And as I understand it, church leaders said, we aren't against protecting the legitimate rights of gay people. But we also have legitimate interests as the Mormon church, to use that shorthand, in our institutions, BYU, and so on and so on. So instead of just kind of waiting for courts to do something or for one side to win or just kind of staving off anything, let's talk with Equality Utah with others and say, is there some way to protect everybody in a new way? And so in 2015, uh, not across all the different areas of policy, but in, if I recall correctly, housing and employment, the Utah legislature passed protections for gay people and for religious people institutions, creating a new normal in that state proactively. There were some common sense balancing tests that one that stands out to me is like if you work as a clerk where part of your job description would be to marry someone, if you weren't comfortable because of your religious beliefs performing a same-sex wedding ceremony, there needed to be someone to call someone as a backup so that that couple's needs are taken care of right away. So it was sort of formalizing what might have happened informally and just really making sure that, as I said, everyone could access the services they hoped to access in the long run. That's right. So by not leaving it to courts, which tend to take a one side wins, the other side loses, but in a legislative context, to work out in these very complicated areas what is a way to be a protective for a wide range of different interests and take into account the different balances. So that gave inspiration. And I think for a number of us here in Washington, watching how this debate had happened at the state level, the conflicts that are continually coming up in courts and in public opinion about these things, that was kind of a signal to a number of us to say, we should start thinking now and acting now about how could this be done at the federal level. Obviously, federal is not anything like Utah in many ways. But if it's a good principle, is there something we can learn from and then kind of work away, in particular to be proactive and to not leave it to the courts because they do tend to take one side wins, the other side loses. And we thought there would probably be a lot of win-win solutions if people sat down to think about it. But also court vindication, if you get it after you've first been lost in court, that can take years. And in the meantime, your business could essentially have collapsed or your religious institution, say a religious higher education institution, maybe it has lost the ability of its students to access federal scholarships or accreditation or whatever. And the fact that 10 years from now, you're vindicated in the court, if that's even what happens, that doesn't seem quite right. And if the court's going to vindicate you at the end, is that going to mean just one side wins? And then you're going to have another round of how do we deal with other people? So it seemed 
to a number of us, religious freedom advocates in Washington, that we should really think about this before, be proactive. One of the first stages was to see if we could find some LGBTQ advocates that also were thinking in the same way, and it turned out that there were some. Kelsey, you were part of a mostly under 30 sort of rising talent Michael Cromarty Forum journalist group this past summer that gathered. And I wonder if you might comment on the generational perspective here. I mean, I know that in my largely evangelical Christian tribe, there are very strong views that tilt traditional in the boomers generation, Gen X largely. There are very progressive views that are increasingly tilting the other way and those who are, I don't know, under 30. And that's true in many respects in the Jewish, Catholic, Mormon, other you know traditional space as well. How's that play here in terms of the noise that people make about wanting one perspective to become the law of the land versus the culture of Mardrabi? Well, as you alluded to, members of the millennial generation are incredibly supportive of both general rights like same-sex marriage, but LGBT non-discrimination protections. But I'll note recent surveys from places like Public Religion Research Institute show that Americans in general, members of a variety of faith groups, Americans in different generations are strongly supportive too, that it's about 70% of all U.S. adults say we should have this type of non-discrimination protection on the books. And so maybe where it jumps out to me a little more, it's sort of the role that millennials or Americans under 30 might play in this is just the lack of engagement with religious institutions, the lack of church attendance, because when you aren't plugged in with faith groups more than knowing your parents go to church or something like that, I don't think you really understand the role that religion continues to play in society. You don't see the religiously affiliated nonprofits out there responding to natural disasters. You don't understand just how crucial, as I mentioned, faith can be in a decision to put your child up for adoption or serve as a foster parent. And so I think that that's something I've tried to tease out in my writing is just as Americans become a little less religiously literate, we risk creating some situations that we sort of don't anticipate the problems until it's too late. So we pass a big law that threatens something like a a faith-based school, and it's not until 20 years later, 30 years later, that we say, oh, maybe we were better off when that school still existed. And so that's been the concern for me more with young Americans is not so much their strong, strong support for LGBTQ rights. It's more just a lack of understanding with the role religion plays in our society society. That's a a great point. And one of the things uh, over the years I've tried to do with all the faith organizations I work with is remind them of how important it is for them to step up their, oh, what shall we call it, advocacy about themselves to the public. So in many ways, they just are kind of invisible to the public, even though in some cases they have religion in their names. And so people are Many people are very unaware, even boomers, but even more, I think, younger generations of the actual role that's played by faith organizations of all kinds of faiths in public. And, you know, sometimes it's uh, 
purpose-built, you know, religious hospitals, schools, something like that. Sometimes it's the house of worship, almost all of which offer one or more, sometimes a large number of services to the public. And almost never are they only to their own members. It's almost always to the broad public, as uh, some research by Brian Grimm and Ram Kanan and others have shown. Uh, Brian Grimm, one researcher in, in this area, he had this arresting idea. He said, in a typical American metropolitan area, you walk out of your hotel room to go find a, he used Starbucks as an example. And he said, by the time you find your Starbucks, you would have passed maybe as many as 25 houses of worship, which provide just innumerable services to the public way beyond their own membership. And you don't even see that, you know, because they look like a church and they must just be there for worship or synagogue. They actually are providing all these services to the community. That's not even counting all the purpose-built organizations. And part of the tragedy here is, yeah, that laws might get passed that shut down these things that people are counting on, but that it's not as obvious as it ought to be that people who are interested in social justice ought to pay more attention to the many institutions that actually help achieve that in our society, many of which are religious. So whether that's in civil rights or that's overseas development or that's helping the poor or or fighting racism, dealing with illegal immigration, helping people out, many of those are religious institutions. One of the most helpful points Stanley made to me when I was doing interviews for my recent Equality Act story was that in this expansion of what counts as a public accommodation, what if we enter a world where just because a house of worship offers some sort of food pantry or our public program like that or rents out their community fellowship space, suddenly they are a place of public accommodation that needs to be very careful about potential lawsuits related to discrimination. And so does that mean that even if a church, the central part of religious life, wants to help out and serve non-members, what if they need to avoid that in the future just to sort of cut off that particular type of vulnerability to these types of lawsuits? And that would be just really tragic. So same thing with uh, there are, you know, disaster relief grants, uh, disaster preparedness grants, uh, actually uh, Homeland Security grants to help houses of worship, which, as we know, have been vulnerable to attacks, uh, violent attacks. And could it be the case? I think the Equality Act does not at all uh, allay concerns. Could it be the case that a, a house of worship that takes one of those grants now all of a sudden is subject to a whole set of non-discrimination requirements that probably nobody actually wanted to apply to them? Parochial schools that take part in, in national school lunches, uh, the, the school lunch program that's federally funded, it, it appears would all of a sudden become subject to new requirements that none of the parents or students who go there would find that appropriate, or would they just be excluded from it? And then their ability to serve poor children would disappear as a side effect of a law that hadn't been thought through as carefully as ought to be. Even as we spell out these potential ramifications, I just want to reiterate that it is very hard to have a conversation about this in our current political climate, because even as I covered the LDS Church's statement on the Equality Act, I think that a lot of the messaging out there was LDS Church opposes equality. <laughs> it wasn't this nuance about being worried about the future of Brigham Young University, the future of the church's social justice or social welfare programming. It's just a very difficult time we're in right now when it comes to messaging and public conversations around around religious freedom and LGBTQ rights. 
Mm-hmm. That's one of the things I appreciated about both of your recent pieces that we'll link to in the show notes if you're listening to this, both Stanley's article, A Better Way Than the Equality Act. He says, your comment is enforcing civil rights for everyone should not be controversial. And you expand on what that means. And of course, Kelsey, your piece as well. We also link to Emma Green's piece, the most recent guest on this podcast. And I've got one more question for you, Stanley. Okay. Go ahead, please. Well, I was just going to say, and so people who have worked on the Fairness for All federal discussions, which have been going on for two and a half years or more, very detailed. What about the different circumstances, different parts of the law and, and so on and so on. We have all done it as an act of faith, right? Because... It's not like there's a big market out there at the moment because people just kind of see each other as you're trying to take away my rights or you're trying to take away my rights, something like that. But to actually resolve these things, if it's possible, requires a lot of detailed conversation. That means hours and hours of very specific conversation at the end of which it's impossible to know, will Congress take up something like this? Will it be favorable? Will the moment pass? Whatever happens. And so I think all of us who have invested in this really did it as an act of faith, as a kind of contribution to the common good. Wouldn't it be better for us to figure out how to resolve these things and not have just endless shouting matches and court cases as people try to protect what they're sure of quite legitimate interests on their side. Mm-hmm. And timing and context are amazing, it seems to me. I mean, you draw out in your piece at length the implications for public accommodations, for employment by religious organizations, for hospitals and medical practices, for adoption and foster care, for religious schools and colleges, and for FEMA, as you just described, as if to say there's an awful lot at stake here, actually, a lot more than we often might see or think about. And I was reminded in reading that today, getting ready for this conversation, Stanley, a little bit about my old history professor about Burke, you know, one of our favorite authors here at EPBC mm-hmm. has a new book coming out that'll talk about Edmund Burke at some length versus looking across the channel at the French Revolution and saying, wait a minute, you can't just upend and rip it all out and start from scratch all over again. I wonder if you would comment finally, maybe in, in closing, and Kelsey, feel free to weigh in as well, but on the timing of this whole thing in terms of larger context. I mean, you've been at this space for about 30 years since you did a PhD and at the Free University in Amsterdam. And in the mid-2000s, President Obama, candidate Obama, you know, said he had a particular perspective about a marriage. And then in 2015, Obergefell happened. And in the last you know, four years, the speed at which some of this has moved has been breathtaking in some ways, mind-boggling, and yet has perhaps the seeds for an interesting, richer pluralism, which you and others seem to be working awfully hard at. But what about the larger timing about Burke, about the French Revolution and the idea that we could just sort of put on a brave new world so quickly? Boy, those are a lot of big references. I should say, on behalf of my alma mater, it was University of Toronto where I got my PhD, although I studied at the Free University, and my dissertation was about the movement of Reformed people and Catholic people in the Netherlands trying to find a new space in public life for them to exercise their faith not just in worship, but kind of out in everything, social welfare, broadcasting, everything else. They figured out a way to do it pluralistically. To me, that's always been an inspiration that people could set out to kind of reconfirm their deepest religious beliefs and then say, we want to do this in a way that also protects your beliefs. We know yours are serious for you, too. And that's kind of, I think, what's at stake here in this fairness for all thing. Maybe four or five years ago, I was at an event in Canada with 
religious freedom advocates from Canada, from New Zealand, from the UK, and I think from the Netherlands, maybe. And we just talked about the set of issues we've been talking about today. And they all said, you know, in our country, they're all ahead of the United States, if you want to put it that way. In other words, they they came quicker by court action, legislative action to same-sex marriage, and to very broad protections against LGBTQ discrimination 10 years, 12 years, 15, 20 years before the United States. They all said that once things start moving, they go really fast. And so in other words, at some point, the public starts saying, oh, yeah, that's right. You know, a gay person shouldn't be kept out of housing. And if it's religious voices saying, we don't, we don't want to legislate with you, then let's just kind of run over them. And I can just see how that dynamic would work. And so that was just encouragement and a goad to me to say, we can't just wait until we think the proper time is. The proper time is, you know, whatever, 10 years ago, five years ago, one year ago, we have to get busy and work at this the best we can, as quickly as we can, and then work out the details and then see if Congress is ready and the public to entertain some way that works largely for everybody. We have to work that on detail because it all depends on the detail. And we don't know if it'll be time, but let's do it as quickly as we can because we have to resolve this in some positive way or else it'll be resolved in a negative way in our society. I've been interested and I will continue to follow this, but how are these 2020 Democratic candidates for president going to talk about these issues and address religious freedom and address religious concerns to expansions of LGBTQ rights? I think so far it's been the typical applause lines about no more license to discriminate and things like that. But I'm just interested if we're going to move into a space where we can have a more open dialogue about what our laws are meant meant to do and how we are meant to treat each other. We'll keep watching. Thank you, Kelsey. Thank you, Stanley. Thanks for having us. You're very welcome. Thanks for the opportunity. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please tell a friend about the show. And if you've not done so already, leave us a five-star rating and review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you're joining us today. Thanks for listening.